Hi, and welcome to Fair Perspectives, the official podcast of the pro-human movement brought to you by the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. I'm your host, Melissa Chen, and my co-host, who you will hear from shortly, is Angel Eduardo. Today, we speak with David Bernstein. David is the founder of the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values, which supports viewpoint diversity, counters radical ideology in the Jewish community, and opposes novel forms of anti-Semitism. His recent book, Woke Anti-Semitism, How a Progressive Ideology Harms Jews, is now available on Amazon. It's a firsthand account from a longtime Jewish leader about how woke ideology shuts down discourse, corrupts Jewish values, and sponsors a virulent new strain of anti-Semitism. In this episode, we discuss how woke anti-Semitism differs from other forms of anti-Semitism, Jews as an identity group, the difference between identity and identity politics, the role of Israeli geopolitics in anti-Semitism, the pros and cons of tribalism, the conflict between Blacks and Jews, culture as a strategy for living in the world, and what the Jewish style of cancel culture is. This episode was recorded on October 11th, 2022. We also discuss in this episode Kanye West's then-recent tweet about going DEFCON 3 on Jewish people. Since then, a lot has developed in the story of Yee's anti-Semitism, including multiple further tweets, podcast appearances, and most recently, his announcement of a 2024 presidential campaign with noted anti-Semite Nick Fuentes as a staff member. We hope to have David back on the show again soon to discuss the many updates of the story and the recent spread of this style of anti-Semitism. But now, ladies and gentlemen, I give you David Bernstein. David Bernstein, thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be with you. Yeah, so you and I have talked a few times before. I've been on your podcast, Hold My Drink, with uh, the lovely Jennifer Richmond. Absolutely. And we've talked about all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. And here, today, we're talking about all kinds of stuff. But I guess it, it, it occurred to me last night that the best way to start is to ask you, what do we do with Kanye West? <laughs> <laughs> what do we do with Kanye West? You know, it's hard to take seriously somebody who talks about DEFCON 3. It's DEFCON 3, you right. know, and, and, and appeared to be completely out of it. Yet he has 30 million followers. Uh, so how can mm-hmm. you completely not take it seriously? Yeah. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not something I haven't seen before. I just, uh, <laughs> but it is a little disturbing when it comes from a major celebrity. Right, right. You know, I mean, Yes, obviously, my my opinion is that we the story of Kanye West is one of millions and millions of people exacerbating and enabling a mental illness. So, right. you know, right. I feel terrible for the guy, but it's just crazy that we're here to talk about anti-Semitism, and uh, he just he just provided us with this ridiculous tweet. Yes, um, but not woke anti-Semitism because, well, in my view, and um, woke anti-Semitism is something very particular. It's a Variant of anti-Semitism that emerges from the current discourse um, that's empowered by the current discourse. And this is really a classical anti-Semitic trope that you saw from Kanye. It could have easily Mm -hmm. been a white supremacist rapper or somebody like that, or I mean, or actor that that would have said something like that. Right. Like, yeah, (laughs) it's madness. Um, But yeah, we're here to talk about your recent book. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think by the time this airs, it'll be out. 
Yep. So it's called Woke Antisemitism, How a Progressive Ideology Harms Jews. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a lot to pull out and talk about there. That's a mm-hmm. salacious title. Uh, it is so a salacious why title. Why don't we start yeah. there? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, you know, I, I was going to name it something a little less provocative. And I had a friend of mine who had just read Woke Racism by John McWhorter. Mm-hmm. And we, he said, you're going to have to call this Woke Antisemitism. And I thought about it. You know, I want to sell books, obviously. I also don't want to offend too many people. I'm, I'm not uh, a overly provocative person. I like to just be intellectually honest. And, you know, but my publisher loved the title, of course, because it's yeah. more likely to sell books. And I think the, t- the contents of the book are much more nuanced than the title might suggest. So can you go into your <laughs> expound a little bit on what woke anti-Semitism is and why is it distinct from you know, the, the non-woke anti-Semitism. Sure. So woke anti-Semitism to me is a, is, it's, it's a relatively recent variant of anti-Semitism that sort of emerges out of woke discourse. Uh, woke discourse provides almost a perfect permission structure for, for a very particular kind of anti-Semitism. Um, when you link identity to privilege in a very fixed way, like white privilege that we, we see in our, today's discourse, it's only a half step away to then link Jewish identity to privilege. So the term Jewish privilege, the hashtag, trended on Twitter for a couple of days straight. And we've seen examples of that. There's one great example at Stanford. There was a Stanford student senator that was being sort of brought up on charges for suggesting that it was okay to, to say that Jews control the media or banking, and that was a correct, that was correct. And he was he was sort of in, in the cross-examination of him, several students who were, who were denouncing him said that uh, we have to, though, examine the intersection between Jewish privilege and white privilege. And I thought that was interesting because it wasn't okay to express anti-Semitism in the traditional vernacular of Jews control the world, but it was okay somehow if you smuggled it in through this sort of uh, social justice discourse. And I think that's, that's what we're starting to see happen. There are other examples of that, you know, the, the, the concept of equity, you know, that Ibrahim X. Kendi has articulated that, that any group that is sort of on average below the mean must be discriminated against. That's a perfect prescription for anti-Jewish and anti-Asian sentiment, frankly. If, um, if, if any group below the mean on average is being discriminated against, any group above the mean is part of the problem is complicit in white supremacy is therefore doing the discriminating. And we see that a lot. But I think the larger point that I want to make about woke anti-Semitism is that it contributes to a, in a liberal society. Anytime you, uh, you have a dogma, you establish a dogma, uh, you're going to see ever more extreme forms of that dogma. Dogma begets ever more extreme forms of dogma. And that's not good for the Jews, as we like to say. Um, you know, it's, uh, you know, Jews thrive in liberal societies, open society, where they're able to bring Jewish culture in a very open way, where we're able to debate ideas. One of the most frustrating things about the current intellectual environment is I was brought up around a lot of Jews and we debated all the time. We debated everything. I learned by debating. And, um, and I, I, I find it very difficult to be shut down and be told someone has the truth already about an important topic and I should just sit down and shut up. And, and I think in a way, in addition to it being uh, ultimately, you know, a, a vector for anti-Semitism, 
It also shuts down a key aspect of who I am as a Jewish person, too. I mean, Jews play a role in society. It's that aversive uh, persona that challenges the status quo. That, that aspect of who we are is also being shut down in the current intellectual environment. It, it, it strikes me as interesting, uh, David, the, the consequences of what, you know, I guess we'll call critical social justice is that for the longest time, Jews have, you know, they weren't seen as white, right? By the very people who view white as a moral good. So, you know, that's why, you know, Hitler did what he did. White was good and Jews were not. And so they were, you know, exterminated that way. And now what we're seeing is that whiteness is seen as evil. And so now Jews are painted as part of white adjacent or as, as part of, you know, having a lot of privilege. And, and so they're attacked from this other end for not, for, for actually being hyper white. I think Pamela Paresky wrote a great piece. I think it was in yes, the Jewish journal um, about this, this concept of hyper whiteness, because it's like combining all sorts of privilege, you know, as if the Jews and the privilege uh, mate the scale sit right on top and therefore are beneficiaries of hyper whiteness in a world where whiteness is seen as an unmitigated evil. And so this right. weird contradiction, right? And so, I mean, I, it's, this is where it seems particularly pernicious because it's adding this dimension of, of attack. Right. You know, look, Jews are sometimes seen as the capitalists by Marxists and they're seen as Marxists by capitalists. And so we can, <laughs> so depending on what the moral good is, as Pamela, I thought, eloquently put it in that article, we can be associated with its opposite. Um, you know, Jews are always overrepresented in most institutions and in most intellectual <laughs> debates. And, uh, and so, as you said, if, if whiteness is associated with a moral good, the Jews are not white. And if it's associated with uh, a moral flaw, then, then uh, Jews are white. And so that to me is disturbing. You know, I also think, and Andrew Sullivan wrote about this, that that demonizing whiteness in the way that this discourse does is only a half step away from demonizing Jews. It just, if you actually listen to the rhetoric of demonizing whiteness, it sounds, if you just substitute the word Jew for, for white, it sounds a lot like the most, you know, hideous anti-Semitic rhetoric. And, and so I don't like a discourse that demonizes people, period, in that way, based on some identity characteristics. I think it mm. provides a permission structure for all kinds of wrongs. And I don't, I think we should push back against that because it demonizes white people, not because it's anti-Semitic or elite anti-Semitism, but it does do that. It does condition people to, to speak out against people who are perceived as powerful or successful. Right. It's, it's actually, it gets even more complicated. You know, Melissa asked a question that I was going to ask you and, and I wanted to dig in a little bit more because even, even the, the grouping of, Jewish people as an ethnic group is a little bit, is, is unique. It's a little bit odd. It's different from other ethnic groups because it's, it's an ethnic group based on a religion, right? And it, or religion it became, based on an ethnic group. Or, or, yeah, but I mean, it, it's, you know, there, there are Russian Jews and there are, there are, you know, uh, Ukrainian Jews and there, you know, so it's like, Ethiopian, right. yeah. because of the diaspora, because of the history, because of the way things turned out, it's now this, this, this group that doesn't quite fit into any box. And so it becomes, right. you know, kind of Schrodinger's villain in a way, right? Yeah. It, wherever the villain box is, we're just going to put you there because it's easier. Uh, right. 
but that also makes it defy certain conventions in a way, right? Where, you know, and, and there are some, there are some analogous things going on in terms of the way people talk about Jews. It's like this, this incredibly huge, disparate, diverse group of people all lumped into this one category based on this one label. And so much nuance is just removed. But the weird thing is that Jewish people seem to accept that in a way. They, they say we Jews and they kind of take that on in that way. Yeah. But so, so in my no, view, it, the, the, the kind of flattening is happening in both directions. Yeah. Look, we want to be part, most of us want to be considered part of a people, right? We're, we're claiming that it's our tribe. Now, we know that it's complicated. I mean, my mom is a Jew from Baghdad, Iraq, and I grew up with a whole series of customs and right. foods that look very different from the ones that my dad's European family brought. And if you go to Israel today, you see a lot of people like me that had parents who were, you know, from Yemen and, and one from Romania. And they're, and so there is there are common aspects of the Jewish experience and the Jewish narrative and in history that bring people together that make us feel a sense of kinship. But it's also, we're also a very diverse people. Um, you know, there's uh, Ethiopian Jews, for example, who have a very distinct history as well, but live in the state of Israel. And so um, I do think it is a complicated identity. Uh, a very famous rabbi, David Hartman, used to say that before Jews ever made it to Mount Sinai, they were slaves in the land of Egypt. In other words, our peoplehood experience precedes our experience as a religious community. Um, so you can be an atheist and a Jew, and there happen to be a lot of atheist Jews yeah. out there, and you can even remain in pretty good standing, actually. Right. Um, yeah. So I was gonna um, ask that. Yeah, yeah. So you know, I'm, I, I mean, I'm I'm a an agnostic. I don't I mean I don't talk a lot about it. You don't really have to talk a lot about it in a Jewish setting. You know, you can you can people don't ask you that much about what your true beliefs are, and I suspect that a lot of very committed Jews, even rabbis, probably have serious doubts about, you know, the existence of God and, and, um, and certain religious dogma that there, you know, and, and you can kind of question it, even in Orthodox circles, there are all kinds of jokes about, about that. So, yeah, right, you know, I'm, right. I'm not, a, I, I've been heavily involved in Jewish life. I've been a Jewish professional my whole life, but I, but that doesn't mean I buy into all the religious aspects of it. Yeah. So I wanted to, I wanted to flag this because and I mentioned the, anal the analogy a little bit earlier, but it seems to me very similar in the way that, you know, you can be, one can be Jew, uh, one can be considered a Jew, one can feel Jewish and, and feel a part of a, a Jewish kind of tribal affiliation and not believe in God and not even practice Judaism in any kind of conceivable way. Right. It's, it's transcended its, its kind of religious origins uh, and it's become this kind of ethnic group that then has its own sort of uh, culture and norms and all kinds of things like that that are in a weird way dis disassociated from its origins, and we are we're seeing similar things happening in the in the black community, quote unquote, mm. where you know there's an ethnicity that was built around this racialized category, and mm -hmm. even people who want to break away from racialization and the whole race conversation and they they disagree with the concept of race completely but they yeah. still consider themselves black and they still consider that an ethnicity and there are there's identity politics happening on that basis yes so 
it's it's a weird thing where Jews are doing identity politics in that same kind of woke sort of way in many ways. And I wonder if if you've thought of that and what 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 can what can be done there because I feel like there's there's complexity about how do right. we approach this. Right. So I I make a distinction between identity and identity politics. Like, I have an identity. It's Jewish. I have a lot of identities, by the way. I mean, I, of course. I could go through. We're all complex amalgamation of identities. Identity politics, to me, if, if we're to understand it in a conceptually coherent way, is a claim that you're being victimized by the system in some way, and by, based on your identity. And otherwise, I'm not sure what it, what, how to distinguish that from identity itself. Now, sometimes, by the way, that can be a legitimate gripe, right? I mean, I may be victimized by the system. You know, what makes it um, what makes it illiberal would be if I'm not willing to debate that. If I insist I'm being uh, I'm being uh, I'm being a, uh, victimized, but hey, you can't even question that, and I get to decide that for you because of my lived experience. That's what mm-hmm. makes it illiberal. That's what makes it sort of quote unquote woke. But that's um, so. I, and, and you know, again, I think you hear some of that in the Jewish community. You hear people saying only Jews get to define anti-Semitism, which I think mm-hmm. is wrong. I think I I think that I may have some insights into anti-Semitism that a non-Jewish person may not because I've experienced in certain ways, and you should listen to me. You should hear me out on that. But then again, there are other data points besides my own lived experience. There's the lived experience of a lot of other Jews who have totally different experiences than I do. And there's also surveys. For example, the Pew study uh, that was done years ago showed that American Jews are the most admired religious community in the United States. So even as as we experience anti-Semitism, even as, by the way, we experience more hate crimes than any other group. I mean, if you look at That's the true. FBI statistics, yep. it's not even close. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, but we're but we still but we still are an admired group. So I have to. So I think it's important that we're able to debate what that means and whether somebody is oppressed. That, to me, is where the discourse goes off off the rails. But the idea of identity itself, I mean, I think that that's not going away. We we, we all are part of various tribes and we can make claims. Uh, about what that means in the larger society. I just think we have to be open to discussing them and not become, become dogmatic about them. Yeah, I, th- I think that's an interesting distinction because um, sometimes I would make fun of, you know, something like, oh, as a, I don't know, as a Lebanese Jew, I am against identity politics. And that it seemed like right. surf- surface-wise that there's a contradiction there. But but I think you're right. I I, I don't think that it's, you know, th- th- there should be a distinction between identity and identity politics about using grievances that are identity based to to achieve certain political goals. Um, I think there is quite a sharp distinction there. But I think the complication here, especially with Jewish issues, always goes back to what's going on ge- geopolitically. Uh, I think it's mm-hmm. it's kind of yes. clouded by the Israel Palestine conflict, and mm-hmm. and you see a lot of reverberations around that and impacting the view of Jewish identity in America. What do you, what do you think about, about this problem? Yeah, so in May 2021, there was a, a round of hostilities between Israel and Hamas and Gaza. And this was, I don't know, maybe the fifth or sixth major conflict in the last 15 years or so uh, between Israel and Hamas. There had been one in 2008 and then 2010 and then another in 2014 and one in 2018. And I have been in the Jewish advocacy world my whole life, and I've been then following how these conflicts play out in the press and so forth. 
And so one thing I used to do is I would look at all the editorials written about it and, um, and you know, mainstream papers and the like, and they would follow a pretty predictable pattern. That is that in the very beginning, like a New York Times or Washington Post would sort of give Israel benefit of the doubt and say, yes, of course, Israel has the right to defend itself against the rockets or whatever was happening. But it, a few days in after the casualties started to mount, the dynamics would change. And all of a sudden they started urging an immediate ceasefire and the rest. And, and this last round, uh, just over a year ago, was completely different. There was this sort of social media meltdown around it. And Israel was immediately uh, deemed the aggressor. And not much had changed in what had actually happened between Israel and Hamas. There was another round of rocket fire. The Israelis struck back. Actually, there were far fewer casualties than in recent, recent cases. But it didn't really matter. The intellectual, ideological environment had changed so much. And, and it, was, it was changing the way people were understanding the conflict, mainstream forces. And to me, that was a result of growing wokeness in society. That was the, that was the shift that had happened that had that changed the way ordinary Americans were, were looking mm. at this conflict. And, uh, and so, yeah, I'm, people like me who care about Israel, it doesn't mean we, we don't think Israel is sometimes at fault. Sometimes it is at fault. There are things that I criticize Israel about as well. People should be able to criticize Israel. But, you know, there's also you know, a sense that Israel's being criticized in ways that no other country in the world is. I mean, 42% of the UN resolutions are about Israel. And, you know, you can't, you know, UN um, Human Rights Council constantly condemns Israel and yet can't even get a, a single thing through about China. You know, it just, exactly. it just tells you that there's this strange double standard that's based, based somewhat on power to who has power and who has doesn't. There's only one Jewish state in the world and there are, you know, 54, I think, Islamic states that um, not all of which have hostile attitudes toward Israel, but many of them do, or they're at least willing to use the UN in that way to signal to their people that they do. So Mm. again, I do think that, yeah, the Israel-Palestinian issue is one aspect of this, but it's not the only aspect of it. It's also how American Jews, who might be perceived as powerful or complicit in white supremacy, are are viewed in this new discourse. Yeah, I so I I don't feel that I'm educated enough at all to have an opinion about mm-hmm. the Israel-Palestine thing besides, you know, please stop killing each other because mm-hmm. it sucks, right? Like the basic kind of ground level, this is awful. Can't we figure something out? Obviously, it's harder than that. But um, I do remember, I do remember, you know, the the shift in in the discourse around it where, and it's conflated with this thing of Jews being white and therefore their opponent is, you know, Palestinians or people of color. And so it's an automatic, we're, we're just grafting on American kind of social justice politics and racialized structures onto a completely different situation that's much more complicated, which makes it impossible to talk about. But the other thing that does make it impossible to talk about, and you you mentioned it, and you also noted in your book that you weren't going to get into it, uh, <laughs> but it is this thing of criticizing Israel gets conflated with anti-Semitism, and that's that's a very familiar tactic, right? Like we're talking about this, you know, social justice ideology, wokeness, whatever you want to call it. And the way that conversation gets shut down because things get called racist or people get called mm-hmm. racist. And that's a way yeah. of shutting conversation down. It is. Anti-Semitism is, is used in a very similar way. I mean, I've seen it. Not everyone, of course. But right. I've seen this thing of people being kind of hesitant to make a criticism. People being hesitant to even speak about the issue because 
that claim of anti-Semitism is going to get hurled at them. And yeah. I've seen I've seen that claim be hurled at people and have it work. I've seen them shut up. And yeah. you know, as you mentioned, like we have to be able to talk about this stuff. So agreed. Uh, it can be I, we can, Jews can be a liberal. I mean, there are there right. are Jew, there are Jews, by the way, who advocate for liberalism, who are very intolerant about criticism toward Israel. It might become a liberal in that context. They're right, you know, being hypocritical in that sense. So I I think people have to be able to have open criticism of in discourse around Israel, um, and we shouldn't try to do that. Um, you know, it's complicated because. Because there's so much hostility toward Israel in the world. And so what happens in the U.S. in particular, where American Jews are strong, at least in U.S. Congress, we don't dominate Congress, as some people say, but, you know, Israel gets 400 votes on a U.N., on a congressional resolution and what, ha what have you. That's because American Jews are well organized politically, and that manifests itself in, in, in how we're able to operate in Congress or how segments of the pro-Israel community is able to operate in Congress. So that power politics is sometimes exerted as a counterbalance to the scourge of hostility that Israel faces in almost every other realm. And it's mm. very tempting for U.S. Jews to try to win wherever we can because we feel like we're losing everywhere right. else. But, you know, that can easily bleed into illiberalism and people should be able to criticize a country. I mean, just yeah, country. I was going to say, like, what you just said, you know, trying to win wherever you can because you're losing everywhere else, that, that sounds familiar also. Yes. Right? That sounds like a familiar yeah. tactic. And then right. it becomes the ends justify the means. And here we are again. And it, it just strikes me actually, you know, something I wanted to ask you because you're, you're the co-founder of the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values and also the Institute for Liberal Values, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. So here we go again, right? <laughs> it's like, uh, uh, I'm I'm just curious because it seems so strange. It seems like, it seems like, if if we swapped out Jewish people for white people, right? Let's you know, and then people started using this we language about whites. They're like, oh, we don't dominate this. We're trying to take over. We're you know, we're doing. We're trying to do this. We're trying to win this. We're trying to get this. That's scary language to me. Hmm. But when we swap Jewish people in, it's it's not it's not seen the same way, but the behaviors can be very similar, right? Like, what is we? Who, who are we? What does the we mean? Yeah. And, and are, are, are we treading on dangerous ground here? Do you, do you see what I'm trying to say? Like, I'm yeah, not sure. It can be. We is always a dangerous <laughs> ground. Like, you know, right. I don't think you escape that, but it doesn't mean that we doesn't exist in some abstract way in that people mm -hmm. shouldn't connect to a tribe and feel a sense of, pride or support from that tribe, it, mm -hmm. you know, it just, you know, that we are tribal people. So how right. do we do that without shutting down democratic discourse in society? That to me is, is the mm -hmm. trick. I'm, I'm, but I, I agree that it can be, it can be complicated. I mean, if I'm claiming to be part of a tribe myself, can't somebody criticize the tribe? Well, I think to a degree, the answer is yes, you can be critical of what it means to be part of this tribe, but you know, are you being demeaning? Um, mm. At the same time, are you um, are you tapping into long tropes that exist in society that um, have been used to, to hurt people? I think we always right. have to be aware of that when we use our free speech. You know, I just mm -hmm. wrote a piece that I think uh, you all shared in the fair substack about the, the critique of culture. And a lot of times that's used to critique 
the cu culture in the black community. And I think that that um, cultural critique is really important. We should be able to critique cultures because culture is an actual explanation for why there are differences or why there are problems. You have to be able to talk about them. But at the same time, I, you have to be careful because there is a long history of right. weaponizing cultural critique and, and being demeaning about other culture. So how do we achieve that? I think is always a little bit touchy, but necessary. Um, and that's why you want a society that's able to talk about things where people aren't constantly trying to shut each other down and they extend the principle of good faith when they talk to other people as much as possible. I mean, you're the person who talks most about that and has really defined that for the rest of us. So I, I think that, you know, um, I know when I'm talking to a person of good faith, usually, and, and I think that's a really important to be able to do that. And, you know, and, and someone like, you know, you says to me, well, I don't understand why you need to identify as a, as a Jewish person, how that can't be weaponized or liberal. Like I'm willing to have that conversation with you and explore it and go there because I know you're not trying to tear me down. Yeah, of um, course. But, but when I'm, when I, when somebody um, is, you know, is, is talking about Jewish privilege as if it's like a, like as if we are a complete monolith and that just by virtue of being Jewish, we automatically are complicit in this monster of white supremacy that I don't even believe exists in the way that you're suggesting, you know, then I'm, <laughs> then, I, then I'm going to, um, you know, fire back, I guess. And that's what we, I did in the book. Mm -hmm. There's this concept of the ummah in Islam, right? Like the, the global Islamic community. And right. it also exists as a very, very strong we. Um, what's interesting is when that breaks down. So, you know, like you said about um, the recent UN vote or attempt to chastise uh, China for its abuses against the uh, Uyghurs, Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang. And how... I think majority Muslim countries almost all voted no to have no discussion at the Human Rights Council. And there you go. You know, it's like, I thought, I thought there was one global ummah and we were supposed to support, you know, all the Muslim countries should be supporting their fellow Muslims. But, but it's interesting where it breaks down. So we is, is mm -hmm. so powerful in galvanizing, you know, certain kinds of political and social change, but it's also very convenient to then disaggregate the we when it's not politically convenient. And so I, mm. I, I guess I, I've evolved on seeing tribalism as, you know, in, instead of seeing it like as a completely unmitigated evil, that sometimes it's adaptive and sometimes it's maladaptive. And mm. there are times when tribalism is adaptive, right? It, it, it clearly, you know, has posed as a kind of survival function for human beings. Otherwise, we would never be adapted to it, right? Um, so our brains are wired for tribalism for a reason, because it had a survival advantage in the course of human history. But, but there are also times when, when this has led to complete disaster. And I'll say that if, if, if anyone has any claims to a kind of uh, systematic oppression, I mean, the Holocaust looms so large. And it's yeah. still like, we're still living in the legacy of that. And, and, you know, today, like you said, David, uh, David, like it's still, I'm actually shocked because when the whole like stop AAPI hate kind of campaign went on and I was looking at hate crime statistics, I was actually shocked by the magnitude of anti-Jewish hate crimes 
um, just even in the city of New York alone, because right. the media coverage never rises to the level of proportionality. So where Asian hate was, right, was a certain amount. And then you look at the Jewish statistic and it was, I don't know, 10x that. I'm like, but the, the, the coverage, the media coverage was, was so much weighted in just one direction. And right. I, I think I, last year there might have been 400 uh, acts of violence against probably Orthodox Jews in the New York area. That's one a day. Right. That's more than one a day. That is a lot. And yet it gets underplayed in the media coverage. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a problem. So do you see this as an outgrowth of critical social justice kind of infecting newsrooms? Yeah, I think to a degree it is. I think it, it, it doesn't adhere to the narrative that, that Black people, and these are committed by Black people, are, um, are victims. Um, you know, and so as a result, they, 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 they don't want to talk about the race of the perpetrator, mm. which can be hard. It is emerging in a very specific social context. And, um, and I think as a result, it's downplayed because media rooms don't want to touch it. So they, they sort of not report on it, but they report on it, uh, you know, without, without talking about the problem sort of uh, writ large. And I think, uh, I think the, and I think the Jewish community has not done enough itself. The organized Jewish community has not done enough itself in insisting that this is a, um, a problem that we have to, we have to deal with it, with it head on. Um, you know, there, I don't think the, the, let's say the non-Orthodox Jewish community has been particularly good allies to the Orthodox Jewish community that has been targeted by this kind of violence. Mm. But are there, are there deeper roots between these two communities? Because it's very similar for the, what you're, what you're saying now is very similar to, um, what's going on with a lot of anti-Asian hate crimes, right? Like the, the clips right. that go viral. Yes. And then you, you look at these clips and the media reporting on it. And it's like one of those things where it's kind of an awkward silence. What are, is there a sort of traditional sort of animosity between these two communities that go back? What are there some roots there, some baggage that hasn't been resolved? Uh, yes, I think that there is some baggage going back. You know, uh, you know if you, Jews and Blacks at one period of time lived very close proximity to each other. At one point, I heard the statistic that something like 60 some percent of New York City school teachers, I think it was 1963, were Jewish. Now, I'm looking, I don't know what the statistic is today, but I guarantee you it's not 63 percent. It's probably not 16 percent. And I would even doubt if it's 6 percent. And that just tells you how much things have changed. Jews have have left the inner city when they were in the inner city and they were more proximate. There were all kinds of tensions between Jewish landlords and store owners and and black folks and so forth. So those tensions were there. There was also the civil rights movement, which was a movement that was very much sort of black and Jewish in a lot of ways. And there were a lot of Jewish leaders in the civil rights movement, but there was also resentment that went along with that. And there were, uh, and there was sort of the black power movement that came in the late 1960s that sort of wanted to be authentically black and to sort of rid itself of the influence of white leaders in the movement. And, And so there was a lot of hard feeling on that. Then you had Louis Farrakhan coming in, who's just a complete anti-Semite. I mean, he just, you know, um, and and a lot of the black community said, well, listen, you might be right about him being an anti-Semite, but, you know, he's a leader and we're going to continue to go to his marches. And that caused a lot of resentment among among Jews toward black people. So there are these resentments. 
you know, and it, it tends to play out in places like New York City, which is a pressure cooker. And you see this with with Asian resentment as well. I live next to Prince George's County, Maryland, which is 60 percent black. And it's got, I think, about a 5 percent Asian population. And there's not been a single instance that I've, I could find of black on Asian crime. Okay. But um, I one time was um, in Chinatown. This is just going back in June. And I was sitting on a park bench waiting for my hotel in Chinatown to be ready. And I witnessed this almost race riot take place between a group of black youth and a very deranged Chinese man who was screaming racial epithets at them. And they were then screaming racial epithets back at him. And I was thinking, I could sit at a park bench in some other location for 100 years and never see anything like that. And I, I do think that New York has some very specific dynamics. People live very close to each other. So these resentments are much more likely to appear in everyday life in ways that you're not going to find in other places where people are, frankly, more separated from each other. So I do think that that's part of what's going on. But um, yeah, there, there, uh, there is a long history of that. And there's a history now, I think, of Asian black violence, uh, too. And you can see some of this play out yes. in Spike Lee's movie, by the way, uh, Do the Right Thing. Uh, it's a great film, and it mm. really goes into some of the resentments that exist in communities. I don't think – was that New York? I think it was New York, actually. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and, um, and you know, there, there's, a, there's a scene of uh, three black men living on a park bench wondering why the Korean dry cleaner has, uh, was able to, you know, set up his shop, and, and, and they weren't able to set up shop, and they were – and, you know, you really, you really felt that pain that exists there. And I think sometimes that mm. pain is turned into – anger and even violence mm. there. Yeah, I loved Do the Right Thing when I saw it. And then I heard Spike Lee talking about it. And it totally changed my opinion of the movie. Right. Because it's, he Why? seemed to understand the film differently than I did. Right. Because I walked away from the movie going, ah, see, this is exactly the problem, is seeing one another in these in these ways where we essentialize and we divide based on these identity categories and we don't see that we're all in this neighborhood together and that, you know, this Italian pizzeria that's been around forever is a part of your community. It doesn't matter if, the, you know, the people are not black like you are. And, and you know, it's so I, I just, I walked away from it understanding all these things and appreciating all this wonderful nuance. But then, you know, someone asked Spike Lee and so I was reading up on the movie afterwards because I was interested. And someone asked him like, you know, do the big moment in in the film is when Spike Lee himself, playing a, a character, mm -hmm. picks up a trash can and throws it through the window of right. the pizzeria, and that's right. when something something very big happens at that moment. Right, something big in the movie happens. I, I recommend everybody watch it because it is a fantastic movie. Yeah, but someone someone asked, like, did your character do the right thing? And and his answer was, yeah. Right. That's <laughs> my answer was like, no, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. So I thought it would, and it had some really complex discourse that was going on, yeah, some dialogue among characters there. Exactly. And that was all lost in his sort of Com commentary. He, right. In my opinion, he completely obliterated all the nuance and context. Right. In that amazing film, that show it showed something so powerful about you know how deep these divisions run and what can happen when we just well you know we plant ourselves on those divisions. But that brings me back to. To asking you, you know, you mentioned this thing on the park bench that you saw. And in my view, if these people saw each other as human beings and 
recognize that they're both probably in the same sort of socioeconomic situation and that they're both struggling with similar things. They, they would realize that they're not enemies with one another, that there's something else going on here and that they should probably get together to address that something else. Mm. Uh, you know, so it leads me again to this thing of like, is the problem that we kind of are just, we keep allowing ourselves to identify based on these identity categories in a fundamental way, right? And, and the, the, the strange thing about Jewishness is that it's not the same kind of identity category. It's a, it's a weird one. Right. In this way, right? So, it's not it's not equivalent. Yeah. So yeah, I I'll push back at you a little bit by quoting mm-hmm. the great uh Nobel Prize winner and Holocaust survivor Ellie Wiesel. He used to say that I find my humanity through my Jewishness. In other words, and it was it was it had to do with his own experience. It was his Jewishness that allowed him to go back and reclaim his humanity. And um and because of the rich tradition, because of the textual uh framework that commanded him to do so wouldn't allow him to go and just be a you know a recluse and i think that there's some there's some truth to that for me too i you know i feel like i come from a great tradition that sometimes exceeds what i see in the rest of humanity you know that um and that i and 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 in identifying that way because i'm a jew i know how to debate because i'm a jew i know how to have a certain kind of discourse um, it's through, you know, the Talmudic discourse around morality that I'm able to understand morality today. Also, the great Western tradition, which I'm a in, proud inheritor of, right? I don't mm-hmm. discount that. It, I think it was partly a function of its relationship to Judaism and, you know, in, in Jewish ethics, but not entirely. It was something absolutely new. So I, I do think our, our affiliation with tribes can teach us with something. I mean, and I don't think that it's it's practical or necessarily a good thing to completely say, well, let's just uh, let's just put tribalism aside. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not sure humanity and the human conception has given us much more than that at this point either. I mean, we can all strive to be human and carve out space for that. But also, you know, it's not people have done some awful things in the name of humanity as well. Of course, um, in the yeah. way, um, yeah. in the way, in in in. Um, transcending supposedly tribalism, they've done awful, awful things to each other. I mean, in many ways, communism and Stalinism was an effort to sort of transcend all that, yet, you know, afflicted, <laughs> well, you know, murderous yeah. rage on humanity. I, you know, yeah, and yeah. so, um, so I'm, I guess what I'm saying is that I think what, what we, we, we have to endeavor to do is find those uh, commonalities. What does it mean to be a human being? And, and at the same time, not insist that we give up something that's important to, to who we are as mm-hmm. people. Um, you know, I was listening to a great debate between uh, Glenn Lowry and Camille Foster recently on Barry Weiss's podcast yeah. about this, about uh, the theory of racelessness that some of our friends have proposed. And, and uh, you know, and I, I'm, I'm torn on these issues. I understand that there's that you shouldn't that you have to be careful not to throw away the, uh, the baby with the bathwater, that there are aspects of of blackness that are incredibly beautiful and culturally rich and. I can understand people saying, you know, blackness means something to me that, you know, and, and, and I, and I don't want to give that up in its entirety yet. That doesn't mean I'm going to, that I'm going to use it as a permanent gripe against society, which is not good for society, not good for me. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I understand it. And I also understand the importance of disaggregating that sometimes that, that the, the idea of that, that race is, 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 
at one with culture is not is not true. I mean, there's there's multiple manifestations of being black. You know, a recent article that I did for Free, Free Black Thought, I um, you know, I noted that there are that you could make suppositions about or inferences about black culture. For example, if you looked at what was happening um, in 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 New York with Asians and Orthodox Jews being beat up, and you could say that's black culture. And yet I can go into a restaurant and see black culture where the bunch of middle class black families are sitting together and having an amazing time and and say that's black culture, too. So why am I saying one of those two things is is black culture? So I understand the need to disaggregate that some some and at the same time feel that there's probably meaning somewhere and that, I, you know, and, and there's meaning for me in in my Jewishness, even though I understand that it can be weaponized by me and by people like me and be weaponized against me. And, um, and so how do I, how do I sort of walk that tightrope in society? Yeah. I, I feel the same ambivalence about this because I, I acknowledge that there is a cultural tradition and inheritance that you get, right. Just by being born into a certain culture and, and, you know, to the extent that culture is a proxy for race, then race as well. I don't think, you know, had I, had I been born um, here in America, I probably wouldn't have been raised, you know, with tiger parenting methods, for example. Right. right? And, and that's, that's quite a common experience. I know that if I'm talking to another Asian immigrant, that we probably have that same experience and there's, there's some shared experience there. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, to talk about is set, uh, this tendency to essentialize too much, right? It's a very thin line because they're also, I mean, I think it was Amy Chua who wrote this book about about why certain groups are successful. And in, in particular, she looked at Nigerian Americans, Jamaican Americans, mm-hmm. Chinese Americans. So she, in, in a way, she disaggregated race and just looked at it from from origins and, and what those immigrant groups had in common. I, I think that's very powerful mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. it's true. What, because what she's doing is actually you know, acknowledging like, look, there, there is something that, that is very common. Look at Jewish, you know, like Jewish immigrants anywhere in the world. Like what is it that they have in common with these other groups that tend to rise to the top, no matter where they immigrate around the world. And, and in this way, we can pick, all right, what is the best of all these cultures and kind of put it together. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, but to do so, you kind of need to acknowledge that there was something positive in, in that cultural inheritance. But if you can't acknowledge that, then you're not going to be able to filter out best practices. You're not. And so, so there's this, yeah. So I, 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 I think that's, um, mm. that's where, you know, if critical social justice is allowed to flourish, that we will lose this aspect, right? We'll be, it's going to be hard for us to filter out. We'll pretend it doesn't actually exist when it does. And, and what's worse is that you also need that discourse in order to lift yourself up. If you have cultural practices in any community might, I mean, maybe the tiger mom thing won't work for the next generation of young uh, Asians, right? Maybe there's yep. too much mental health uh, exactly. problems that go along with it. And, and in this environment, you know, you have to exactly. watch out for that. So it, it becomes a, it beces a way for you to, 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 to collectively change. Um, I, I, you know, and, um, and, you know, we know, I mean, there, there are certain cultural tendencies in certain segments of the black community that are probably not healthy, you know, and if, if, for example, if this idea that being 
that if you're a good student in the black community, in certain places in the black community, you're acting white. If that's a thing, and some people say it's not a thing. Well, many, yeah, many I, people dispute that. <laughs> right. Many people dispute it. But I've heard yeah. many uh, black leaders fully acknowledge Even President it, Obama. Yeah, yeah. Obama acknowledged that. President yeah. Obama acknowledged that yeah. and said that's a problem. It doesn't mean it's a problem everywhere to the same degree, right? Like we have to mm-hmm. be nuanced about it. But if it is a problem, you want to have the capacity to talk about it so you can lift yourself up and you can start to talk about the the, the cultural ailment that is actually holding down people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And of course, you know, I, 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 Coleman Hughes had an amazing conversation about this at some point. We were talking about growing up, you know, he had he had Asian friends and Jewish friends. And he would go to, uh, he would see the sort of tiger mom dynamic and the like, you're going to do your homework before you do anything in the Asian families. And he would see the debate phenomena, like, you know, debating around the dinner table that exists in a lot of Jewish families. Um, we might have had it been a little bit more tiger momish, by the way, in our early immigrant days. Like, I grew up with a mom from Baghdad, Iraq, and, you know, and she had some of the, she was a bit of a, you wouldn't call her tiger mom, but, you know, it, she had some of that as well. Like, you know, and, and so, I think that that those those things are important to notice, and to um, and and they they give us some instruction on how we might want to structure our family life. And even me as a Jewish person, I can think it makes me realize that there was something in my cultural heritage, just like this debating and talking that I I brought to my family. You know, every Friday night for a long mm-hmm. time. Now my kids are getting old and they don't want to always sit down and have dinner with me anymore. But um, <laughs> you know, we would That's sit universal. down at Shabbat dinner, yeah. and I would raise a question for debate, and then they would say, "No, let's talk about you know something completely different. Like, do video games cause violence?" And then I would say, um, "I would say, okay, that's cool." And then I would say, "Of course, video games cause violence. Obviously, because in France, you know, no one they play video. You know, you know uh, where they have." Um, you know, there's 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 not as much violence because we they don't have guns. But in America, they cause violence because we also have guns here. And the kids like look at me like they want to kill me. And that's exactly <laughs> what I'm looking for. Like proving I, your I, point. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You want to cause violence against me right now. That's because you're yeah. playing too many video games. But, you know, I think that's that that's awesome, you know, to, to have those yeah. conversations. And it teaches them how to think. Um, right. And um, and we we should we should spend a lot of time teaching them how to think. And I, I think if I was just humanitarian, I think if I was just pro-human and nothing else, I would lose a little bit of that in my uh, the upbringing of my kids. I would lose a little um, bit of that connection. Okay, so let me. This is fascinating. I love this because it. So here's here's where my uh, my intuitions might be different. Right, the way that you're describing this. So okay, culture as far as I can, as far as I'm concerned is another way of saying it's a strategy, right? A culture is a strategy for living in the world. Uh, and that includes, you know, things that are not necessarily directly applicable to success in any kind of way, but it's, you know, this is how, this is how you have a good time so that you feel good so that you can be happy, or this is how you set yourself up so that you can do this sort of work and, you know, excel in this way versus that way or whatever, right? That's what I see culture as. It's a very complex, multifaceted strategy for living and people have different ones and culture gets passed down and it's a kind of a game of telephone. You know, it, it shifts from generation to generation. It changes. Some things carry over and it adapts in that way. So it's very fluid, right? Mm-hmm. And there are different kind of versions of similar tactics based on ancestry and culture, right? So you're mm-hmm. talking about the the Talmudic sort of tradition of debate and argument, which is beautiful and wonderful, but 
and you're you're grounding it in in the Jewish context context within which you received it, which is yes. great. But but there's something behind it, right? It's the Jewish context is the context, but it's not the thing itself. The thing itself is this appreciation for debate, appreciation for discourse. And that can come from any number of, of places. It just happened to come from that place for you, right? And the, yeah. tiger, the tiger mom thing came from, you know, that particular context for a bunch of different reasons. And it's going to have its own flavor to it and all that sort of stuff, which is great. But what's behind it is discipline. And, you know, these sorts of things, right? So you can, you can reduce all those things to fundamental principles that then can be translated into all these other areas. So I would just caution people not to essentialize the, the, you know, whatever the trait is or whatever the tactic is, whatever the approach is to the context within which they got it, because that's maybe where the problem arises, right? And the other thing is that it's happening in the other direction as well. The essentialism is happening in the other direction where people say, you know, people want there to be a black culture. And that's a really strange concept to try to graft onto things because we have black culture in Mississippi, black culture in Illinois, black culture in Indiana, black culture in Florida, and they're not the same. So what, are, what is this thing that we're trying to group it into, right? But they're not, not the same either. In other words... There it is, it, you know, you can disaggregate to a degree, but there are some aspects of it that are probably cut across geographic lines, too, even if they're different right. experiences. You know, when we were yeah. together, Angel, in June at that retreat in New York, and we, there was a, a jazz artist, Donald Harrison, who came to perform. Mm. And by the way, I think he was two out of, he was just, there were just two out of the four musicians were black. The other two, one was Jewish and one was Asian. It was unbelievable music, you know, you know and I've heard jazz before. It's just, but it, it's there's something about it. And I, I fear that there's a little reductionism in that. You know, there's a there's a whole discourse now around how how there's an, that you can find a, an ethic of excellence within jazz. That mm -hmm. that um, and um, and it's yeah. called, uh, you know Greg Thomas talks about this a lot. Yeah, Greg Thomas talks a lot about it. Um, and Albert Murray wrote about it in the Omni American, his, right. his great book about it. Antagonistic cooperation is what he calls it, and it's a social model. But I'm not sure you can completely separate that from the the art form, the cultural form. And maybe I'm being a little spiritual here, and maybe I'm accusing you of being a little too reductionist in this way. I mean, I agree <laughs> with you. Uh, you know, cultures are survival mechanisms, of course, and they they they're about our adaptability in a certain cultural context over the years. But there may yeah. be more to it than that. There may be something about how sure. we relate to each other as humans yeah. that goes beyond just surviving and oh no and, absolutely yeah i didn't mean to reduce it in that way it's definitely extremely complex right. but but in in a in a practical sense that's what they are and that's what they're for right they're adaptive for those reasons in my mm -hmm. view and the thing is yeah you know you're talking about jazz and there's no need to disregard or or ignore where jazz came from and how jazz came about and from what people's jazz originated because it's the fact of history, but essentializing it in a cultural way. Right. So, you know, to, to jump to something else, this thing of like Eminem can't, can't really be in the group. He can't really be in the genre of rap yeah, I think because it doesn't belong to him because of his skin and his ancestry. Yeah. That's crazy. He's as, 
he's as talented and good at it and into it himself. He feels it as deeply as anybody else does. Right. Um, I, I agree with that. And I think, by the way, that's not fair to the black artists who created the genre in a way. You're, you're basically saying it's only for them. I mean, you know, you've done right. something so powerful that you've spread it in humanity. I mean, some people right. said that uh, black Americans are person for person, the most culturally influential people in the entire world. Like, and I think mm-hmm. there's some truth to that. You know, um, I have a son who happens to be a R&B singer. He's 25 now. And, you know, when he was a teen, he was doing some volunteering and some projects. And, you know, he could he can stand up and just rap off, you know, impromptu and, and on anything. And, and, and that and, and some of the other kids were watching him sing and rap. And they were like, wow, you're, you're by far the best added in this group here, you know? Um, and, and so I think that's an amazing contribution to humanity. And I, I, I think that uh, cultural appropriation is, is totally <laughs> the wrong way of thinking about, yeah. about a social model. And some of this is really, it's a criticism of a social model. Like I think the, the, uh, the, a much better social model is doing what we're doing here and probing each other and challenging each other. And I mean, we're all distinct sort of races or ethnicities right on this, uh, on this podcast right now. And, it's sort of, uh, and we can be both part of that and distinct from it and, and, and debate about it and, and really go into what separates us and um, where we might experience, quote unquote, oppression, where we might not experience it. And, 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 um, and I think that's a far better social model than this imposition of discourse in society that tells people exactly how they must talk about these issues. Because if right. they don't talk about it in this way, they might hurt somebody's feeling. Uh, and I think that's not a good way of being. I don't think that's going to get us uh, ahead. I don't think our society is going to be more fair in the long run with that social model in place. So I don't like the social model. I wince at it. And, <laughs> and yet I also, I especially don't like it as a Jewish person who, um, who wants to be able to debate. I don't like it because it, it's used to, to you know, advance certain ideas that I think are dangerous and bad in society that we should de-emphasize, like, you know, this idea of that, of linking identity to privilege, I think is a terrible way to, uh, to think about it. I mean, you know, you're, you're, you know, being white may get you certain advantages in certain instances and not get you certain advantages in other, or maybe it may even hurt you in certain places. And I, I think we should be able to talk like that and, and, and not, and, and, and embracing a dogma and saying, this is the only way to look at the world just creates all kinds of prejudices and, and resentments that are not going to move us forward. And that's really what my book's about. It's a little bit of a bait and switch because I want to talk about liberalism too. I want the Jewish community, and, and this is partly, you know, I've come out of the Jewish world. I've been CEO of a, of a major Jewish umbrella organization and headed up several organizations. And I watched it lose its liberal moorings. I watched organizations taken over, just like the ACLU was taken over almost overnight by this ideology, I watched it happen in the Jewish world too, and and I thought it was extremely destructive. It, we are we are organizations that would debate into the wee hour of nights every fine point of every issue. Couldn't even talk about any of these issues that they were accepting policy and around. You know, in the wake of George Floyd, and so that's not the kind of community that I want to be a part of. That's not the tribe I want to be part of. And so it's a critique of that too. It's not just about anti-Semitism. It's really about like, what kind of communities do we want to live in? Do we really want to live in a, a communities that are walking on eggshells all the time? Do we really think that's going to make, uh, that's going to advance human dignity? I think a lot of the people who 
think that they're advancing human dignity by telling everybody to stay in their lanes, you know, and that, that's a, that's a, a comment I've been hearing frequently, like stay in your lane. And that, what does it mean to be in your lane? It means based on your identity category and how you suffered and what gives you the, the right to speak about. I think that's a very destructive way of managing a complex society. Yeah. Wow. It's de- it's definitely sure. a difficult needle to thread, right? Because, you know, I mean, I have noticed what you've been saying about, you know, I would go over, so I, you know, we'll go over to my friends sh- for Shabbat, Shabbat dinners. And I love the tradition of arguing and parents would be arguing with their kids, which if you grew up in a more traditional, you know, like, in 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 sort of Asian families that that practice very strong Confucian values, there's no right. arguing against your parents, and so right. and so it, it's yeah. very clear to me that that cultural inheritance does influence how you end up interacting with others, right? But it's a very thin line from doing that to then essentializing from the outside. I think, you know, so I think a lot of the arguments about kind of rolling back and just kind of seeing like, okay, let's just get rid of all these identity uh, characteristics. It's, it's because we don't, we're so afraid of the slippery slope being slippery that we're just like, okay, Mm -hmm. we're just gonna all see Mm -hmm. everybody as this, you know, colorless morass of people and, and disassociate with our tribes. Not at all. Don't you think that's what it is? I mean, I don't, I don't think that that's the stated the stated goal, at least not mine, right? I think the the variety is beautiful, the diversity is beautiful, but we need to contextualize it properly. The essentialism is is an improper contextualization, in mm. my view, right? Because yeah. like my parents, I doubt they could spell Confucius, but it was right. the exact same thing. I was not supposed mm-hmm. to talk back, I was yeah. not supposed to argue with them, and that was that was a struggle for a little asshole like me. So, (laughs) you know, there were, there were, there was, that's a strong cultural thing that, you know, you either get or you don't, depending on whatever the the history is and how the intermingling happens and all that sort of stuff. By the way, it didn't exist everywhere in the Jewish world. You know, there was more of a sort of a uh, authoritarian model in my Iraqi Jewish heritage than there was in my Ashkenazi European Jewish heritage. Uh, you can still probably, yeah. I have no doubt that an Iraqi Jewish family argued at the Shabbat dinner table more than their neighbors, their non-Jewish neighbors did. I, I think that there was some of that there, but it, it was really more a function of my Ashkenazic upbringing and the people that were around me. I mean, and I'm very right. proud of my Iraqi heritage. I love that part of me. It's, it's beautiful. It's culturally rich. It's more mm-hmm. fun, by the way. It's way more fun than the European <laughs> form of Judaism. Like, you know, we have like crazy traditions and, and people who are close to each other. And, and so I really love that, but it, it, but it didn't, it didn't have that. It didn't have the same kind of uh, debate ethos as Ashkenazic tradition. Did. And, you know, I, one of the things I talk about in the book is, you know, I, I found myself a yeshiva, which is a, a Jewish seminary, ultra Orthodox yeshiva, black hat yeshiva early on. And, um, and we were studying Talmud. We're learning to study in Talmud in, in pairs, what are called chavruta. And you, you, you take a little, air, a little piece of tract of Talmud and you debate about it with your chavruta partner, who usually knows more than you do if you're a student. Uh, and sometimes people who are of similar knowledge will be chavruta and they'll study together. And I'm sitting there and all of a sudden a guy stands up in the middle of this, it's called the Beit Midrash, in the middle of this, like, this 
room where all people are studying together. And he starts screaming loudly at the guy across from him, screaming. And I'm like, what are you doing? And I realized that actually that's par for the course in this environment. That, that, that trained us on how to argue. Now, of course, that didn't mean you could argue anything you wanted in those environments. And, <laughs> I, and, you, know, and, and, and you couldn't argue that you know, God doesn't exist, or you couldn't argue that, that, um, that you know, Moses didn't receive the Torah at Mount Sinai. But, of, but once you get that training, once you learn how to reason in that way, it becomes very hard to confine that within the Jewish tradition. So there are people like me who say, oh, yeah. I now know how to argue based on the Talmudic exchange. So I'm now going to question everything, yeah. which is, of course, what I did. Yeah. <laughs> but um, they didn't you know, plan I think that, a fail safe there. <laughs> right. They didn't. They, they couldn't really pull it off. They couldn't yeah. really pull it off. And that's why so many Orthodox Jews over the years produced non-Orthodox, great non-Orthodox Jewish thinkers <laughs> who mm. thought, you know, because ultimately they were teaching people how to escape their own their own yeah. theological bondage in a way. I'm, I'm reminded of uh, George Carlin talking about his upbringing. He went to a very strange Catholic school in New York City where they didn't have grades. And, you know, they, they had a very interesting model for teaching. And they basically, you know, they basically sowed the seeds of their own demise with him. You know, they taught him to be rational and reasonable and argue well and question everything. And for some reason, it didn't occur to them that he was going to start questioning the faith and start questioning the structure of the whole thing. And by, you know, as he said, when he reached the age of reason, he was dead. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Probably a pretty good analogy. Although, you know, I remain, you know, very connected to my own tradition, maybe not as much as mm. I would be if I, you know, was easy, it was easier for me to buy into all the religious precepts. Um, but, um, but, you know, I, uh, the people had aspect to me speaks to me to a, a degree. Um, and, you know, and, and yet, you know, I've been in, in doing intergroup relations my entire life, you know, and, and really value that as well. I value coming to a common space and, Right. And I think that, you know, part of what I want from this book is to say that maybe we need to start building a new common space. You know, maybe um, the old progressive coalition that we worked so hard to build that that emphasized our common oppression is not the right is not the right coalition yeah. anymore. Now we need to start asking ourselves, OK, well, maybe, you know, th- what 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 binds us, Asian-Americans and certain Latino groups and heterodox black thinkers is. Is the, is the need to create a thriving liberal democratic society in which people can mm. debate. And I want that to become the new, the new coalition. I want that to become yeah. um, the new model for intergroup relations. And, um, right. um, and, and let's, let's, let's undertake that project together from our unique cultural vantage points, which might be a little different. Um, but let's, let's, let's get to know each other and work on that. I had a very interesting experience not too long ago. I, I spoke at a mainstream Chinese American group. There were like 600 people in the room. I'm not going to say which one. And I don't think the CEO really wanted me to go off on a anti-woke tirade. And I, uh, he sort of conditioned me not to, but he asked a question <laughs> at one point and I couldn't help myself. And I started talking about how, like, are you oppressed as Chinese Americans? I don't think you are. I'm a Jewish American. I don't think I'm oppressed. It doesn't mean we don't face discrimination. What is the right narrative for our community in this society? Is it the oppressed versus oppressor? Or is it something that I call patriotic pluralism? Is it, is it the idea that we're, we can be both patriotic and love the country, but also understand our pluralism? I think that's the right narrative 
for ourselves. Mm. And I got thunderous applause and people coming. They, I couldn't even get out of the room afterwards. So many people were coming up to me wanted <laughs> to talk to me. And I think I surprised the, the head of the organization who agreed with me privately, but was scared that his own community would reject him if he was too vocal about it. Um, and I think that's, I think that's what's happening in a lot of these communities. Like there's a silence that people are pretending they're playing a part and pretending like they're woke so that they can still fit into that progressive coalition. And we haven't fleshed out this new vibe yet enough, this new opportunity yeah. enough for them to start to say very publicly, we are going to be part of that coalition. And we're going to be part of, we are going to and, and defend, uh, you know, what, what makes America great, what makes us want it to come here in the first place. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I was just going to say, you're giving me, you're giving me this, I, it just occurred to me, I never thought about this in this way, but, you know, I've been to protests and I've been to concerts and there's a similar phenomenon for me going on. I get goosebumps at both things, mm-hmm. uh, you know, especially, especially, you know, when the, when the artist is some, someone particularly dear to me, you know, I've listened to them for a long mm-hmm. time or something. Right. You have this mass of people and they're all expelling all this energy because they love something so much, right? Everyone in that room paid money to see whoever this, this band is or whatever. And mm-hmm. obviously because they enjoy it, right. obviously because they like it, probably because they love it. And when a, a song comes on that everybody loves, they scream and there's this energy. Right. And it's so powerful. And I, it just occurred to me how different that energy is at an angry protest. It's the same kind of energy, where all this all this emotion is being is being expelled by all these people in this mass and it has this gravity but it's it's you know they're trying to fight for something but there's a there's a negativity tinging it and it changes the way that it, it lands for me yeah and, you know to to but they're righteous protests no there are of course there are righteous course, yeah. protests yeah there are of course right. there are yeah yeah yeah, but I've seen that negative. Right. Yeah. I, you know, when, when Black Lives Matter erupted, there was a part of me that really wanted to be part of it as somebody who really related to the first 1960 civil rights movement. I would I would have loved there to be a sequel to that. Right. And um, and, you know, and I didn't quite know what Black Lives Matter was when it first came out of certainly like, you know, mm-hmm. Trayvon Martin and then Michael Brown and the rest. And I, I, I was always, in, I'm always in New York. I'm a frequent in New York. And I was walking through the city and I saw a Black Lives Matter protest that was taking place there. And um, the, the refrain over and over was, fuck the police, fuck the police. And, um, and I thought to myself, this is the sequel to the civil rights movement of Martin Luther King Jr. You know, and mm-hmm. I, it just felt very angry. And I'm not saying that there was no legitimate gripe in there, but it, to me, yeah. it did not, it did not sort of, tap into our common humanity, our higher sense of purpose right. that you would have gotten in a concert, like when people are together or to a, a righteous um, protest. And, yeah. and, and I think that, um, I think that that's what I'm after is, yeah. is to find those uh, higher sense of purposes where people can come together and have the kind of, yeah. or there, there's a smaller, a smaller analogy, you know, like let's, when you, you, you're having a conversation with somebody. And then you both start complaining about work, right? That's a, you can connect with a stranger complaining about how much you hate your bosses, right? Right. And there's a connection there and it's a way to, to bridge the divide and break the ice and all that stuff. 
but it, it's a very different feeling when you suddenly start talking about a movie you both love or, or a, right. an activity that you both are really into. Like if you're both into CrossFit and you start talking about technique and all this stuff, you, you're getting engaged and you're getting into it and you're, you're connecting with each other, but there's something fundamentally different about those two yeah. kinds Agreed. of connection. We and should seek that, that common bond more than we do the, the common yeah. resentment. Mm-hmm. Melissa was gonna chime yeah, in. Yeah, sorry, Melissa. I keep no, it's okay. No, it's fine. I was gonna change the topic. That's why I wanted to uh, <laughs> let you go ahead, uh, David. In your book, chapter eight, you the title of that chapter is "Cancel Culture: Jewish Style." Um, I didn't mm-hmm. get a chance to read it. I, I wanted to ask you, what is that? And this will actually tie us back to Kanye <laughs> because <laughs> the the tweet that he made after the very offensive tweet that got deleted by Twitter was, who do you think created cancel culture? And you know what he's insinuating mm. there. So yeah. um, can you expound on that chapter <laughs> title, please? I see that one. Oh, yeah. Man. So it, it's interesting, by the way, that you just said that, you know, I posted about my book in several sort of anti-CRT Facebook groups and the like, because, you know, those are people who might read my book. And of course, I got a lot of really enthusiastic endorsements of it. Wow, this is great. I've been watching this and I've been wondering about it. And of course, there are Jewish people on every group who are like, yes, I'm going to buy your book. I'm going to buy your book. Um, And every single instance, somebody would chime in there and say, stop whining. You Jews created cancel culture in the first place. Um, And and you're the ones who created wokeness. (laughs) So stop bitching about it. So, you know, so that that happened, too, which is a reminder of the more traditional vernacular of anti-Semitism, you know, that you you, you Jews are acting in accord with each other and our the claim is that it's people like is like uh like Marcuse and uh, some of the the Jewish German intellectual thinkers that uh came in and they're um and okay. they created cancel culture as if that's somehow all the Judaism you know or Jewish people <laughs> by the way they conveniently ignore the fact that a lot of the people who are most opposed to it are Jews like Barry Weiss and Sam Harris and Eric Weinstein yeah. and you know, a lot of the people that are involved in our organization. So a lot of them are Jews too, but those yeah. people don't count. Only the people yeah, who are afraid of the problem count. Right, yeah. exactly. Um, so so what do I mean by that? Like there is a unique uh, form of, of of Jewish cancel culture that I that I started to experience. Um, you know, when I, um, when I first came out, okay, about being sort of uh, critical of wokeness and I, um, and I, I wrote an article there were all there was this sort of Twitter flame war that emerged, and you had all these rabbis. So somehow there was a there was a progressive rabbi posted it, and she had a lot of progressive rabbi followers, and they started chiming in, and they were articulating this sort of like, you know, you've had space, and now is the time to make space for others, and that may feel like cancel culture to you, but it's not. And and I and my my pushback was that is cancel culture. In fact, you're telling me that somebody gets to determine who has space and who doesn't. And that's presumably you or your friends. And you get to silence anybody else who you decide were once privileged and had a place at the table and you're going to make space for others. And too bad if you don't want to abide by that, these rules, those are the new rules. So that, that was sort of a unique Jewish um, version of this. Um, what um, My organization created what we call the Jewish Harper's Letter, which was patterned after the Harper's Letter that Thomas Chatter Williams did. And, you know, the uh, in the wake of the George Floyd killing. And it was a letter that written by by we, we also did a rabbi's letter. And the rabbi's letter was, two, was signed by 250 reforming conservative rabbis warning against 
this sort of censorious culture in the Jewish community and, and about how the dangers that it might bring. Um, and there was a, uh, a prominent woman conservative rabbi who posted in a rabbinical listserv that, um, that, you know, she has real problems with the current environment and she doesn't think it's open. And she was called a transphobe and she was called a racist and people piled on her and so forth. These are other rabbis who are doing that. And so, you know, um, in general, the Jewish community tends to abide by certain c- civility code. You, you, can, you can't be too much of an asshole, but, but you can be just enough of an asshole to stifle discourse. And I saw a lot of that on the front lines of this, you know, and it manifested in all kinds of ways. You know, I, I, I have this part of the book, I think it's the previous chapter, I called them a quarter test. Batya Unger-Sargon, who I'm sure you all know, she wrote a book on woke media and the like. She was the editor of the Forward uh, editorial page, and she decided to profile a bunch of black heterodox thinkers like Glenn Lowry and Coleman Hughes and John McWhorter. Mm-hmm. And um, she experienced tremendous backlash from that. Uh, and people were calling her a racist, and uh, she ended up leaving the Forward over those controversies. And I was the head of a, a, a Jewish umbrella organization, and I yearned to bring some of those voices to the table, but knew I could not do it. Knew that I, if I tried to do it, I would also be similarly accused and, um, and allowed myself to be sucked into all that. Um, that's cancel culture. It's not, to me, cancel culture is not just about being canceled. You have to also, what is the culture part of it? What kind of culture keeps people in their place and doesn't allow them to talk and doesn't allow us to, to, engage in a free uh, exchange of ideas. So that's what I mean by that. They had some very specific manifestations in the Jewish community. One of the, one of the events that happened that really traumatized me in all this was um, a Jewish social uh, scientist named Ira Sheskin and another one named Arnold Dushevsky wrote an article saying that a recent study on the number of Jews of color inflated the number of Jews of color. It's not 12 to 15 percent as they said, but it's more like 6 or 7% based on the, the most recent survey data we have. Uh, they were absolutely lambasted. There was a, a petition drive that was signed by 2,000 Jews, many prominent Jewish names, basically calling them a racist. And, um, and the head of the reform movement, I've said it publicly, so I'll say that again, um, uh, accused them of white intellectualism for just <laughs> simply... Uh, challenging the demographic findings of a very poorly constructed social science survey. And I was asked to sign that letter. And a lot of the people I knew were signing that letter. And I just thought it was awful. It was awful. And I called Ira Sheskin, who I've known for years. And I said, Ira, I'm sorry. I can't say anything because I had an umbrella organization. And a lot of people who criticize you are part of my organization. And I would get pushed out if I did that. And he said, don't worry about it, David. I understand. I completely understand. But I don't understand. Like, that's not an acceptable price for me to pay. And that's Jewish, that's cancel culture Jewish style. And, um, <laughs> and um, I wanted to push back against that because that's, that's not the tribe I signed up for. So, yeah, these are real issues. And, you know, there are all kinds of examples of, of that people being bullied by people who are supposedly very righteous. You know, in the name of the righteousness, they bullied people who yeah. they thought, you know, didn't sing from the same song sheet. And I thought... Okay, and they don't even realize, of course, they think that they're being righteous. And um, and so I, you know, I wanted to push back against that. I don't think that's who we should be. Um, I don't think that that should be the, the new culture of the Jewish people should be replaced by this this vibe. You know, the other thing that I saw and it was happening everywhere. So I don't want to make it unique to the Jewish community is what a guy named Matt Brunet called identitarian deference. 
And that is that, you know, that you decide in that, um, that your institution, you know, which might be dominated by quote unquote white people, doesn't have standing on these issues to articulate a policy on systemic racism. So you empower certain people on your behalf to make those decisions. It might be in the case of a Jewish organization, we're going to hire a Jew of color who will be our head of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And that person now basically gets to decide our attitude about these very complex social issues. And once they make that, that commitment, they sign on the dotted line of deference, they, they have no maneuverability anymore. They're now stuck in this. So even if they say, well, maybe we went a little too far, they can't get themselves out of it because they've already sort of signed the contract on that and uh, throwing, you know, they've thrown away the key in a way. And I think that that's destructive. And I think that's why even if the political winds change, even if it become, becomes extremely politically disadvantageous to articulate woke ideas in public, a lot of these institutions are just sort of stuck with those, those commitments that they made. Um, and I think that's why they say that politics is downstream from culture. I think institutional life is far downstream from politics. And, and it's going to take a while to transform, to, to sort of um, reclaim institutions, if we're ever able to, from, from making those commitments early on. I think it's great that you're calling this out because, you know, I, I do think cancel culture is universal. There's there's a version of it that is, you know, in the Asian community too, right? And because we do live in a world where identity politics is so prevalent, it's easier for people within the community to point out things that are wrong with the community, right? It's just easier to do that. And it, it almost holds more weight. Um, so right. it's it's a good thing that that you're calling it out. Uh, David, we, we're going to move on to the last question, which is the same question we ask everyone. Um, at FAIR, we like to cultivate a pro-human approach to a lot of the contemporary mm-hmm. issues that we face. What, does, what does pro-human mean to you, and how can everyday people model that? You know, I think pro-human means looking for what we have in common with each other and not looking for what we divide each other, to create discourse that allows us to explore our common humanity and explore what di- what what makes us different too, like to 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 give ourselves space for that. You know, um, sometimes it's just in how we talk to each other. Like somebody will say, "Well, you're you're just tone policing me." I'm thinking the difference between saying something in one way that allows for more conversation versus saying it in a way that is snarky that actually tries to shut down conversation is all the difference in the world. It's, it's what allows us to find our me- meeting of the minds or not, or, or decide that, we're, you know, we're going to do things uh, our separate way, but at least we've explored what the possibilities were. So that's what it means to be, to be pro-human and to, um, and, um, and I think we've got to work really hard against these sort of um, centrifugal forces that are pulling society apart to create that common space. So that's why I'm so grateful that FAIR plays that role and that we can play that role, that we can even model that in a conversation like this. Um, even if we don't agree 100% on everything, we're, we have a discourse that allows us to, to sort of think through, through and argue and find where we might, maybe, well, maybe you agree with me more 5% than you did before. And maybe I agree with you 5% more than I did before. And that's progress. And and that, that's pro-human. That's really beautiful. David Bernstein, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Fair Perspectives. If you'd like to support the show, you can do it by subscribing on YouTube and on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a positive rating and review. You can also access exclusive podcast content, such as Q&As and bonus episodes, 
by visiting us and signing up at fairperspectives.org. For weekly fair news and opinion pieces by members of the fair community, visit our Substack at fairforall.substack.com. And tune in to Fair News Weekly wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to join or support the pro-human movement, visit us at fairforall.org slash join us. Thanks again, and see you next time.